Welcome friends, this is episode 3 of Earworm Audio Theater, brought to you by Zach and Elizabeth. Today's piece is by Chris Eli Black and is called Hands from the Fire. We're quite lucky this week because Chris actually wrote and submitted this piece specifically for our earworm, so y'all are the first to hear it and it's amazing. This piece features two characters named Carmen and Warner. The former is a home healthcare employee and the latter is a former soldier who was permanently injured from a landmine. For today's piece, Zach and I will be playing our identified genders respectively. Furthermore, we have a special guest working with us today, Spencer Sansom, who will be reading key stage directions. The setting for this piece is Warner's apartment, which is messy and in disarray, reflecting his mental state. We hope you enjoy the play. After we finish the read-through, we are going to be looking at who Chris Eli Black is, and then we will open the floor for our discussion. Let the metaphorical curtain lift. The small living room of Warner's apartment. Everything is in disarray. It is dark. There are papers on the floor, empty dishes on the coffee table creating permanent dust paintings. An old military uniform is folded over a chair towards the back of the room. Chip bags and beer bottles trail the floor. Sitting in the dark, barely visible, is a stagnant figure. It's clearly a human, but they sit motionless like a statue. There is a knock at the door. Quiet. No response. Another knock. Still nothing. A louder knock. The figure briefly moves. It's open. The door opens, and another figure walks into the dark. They shuffle around until they reach a light switch and turn it on. The apartment looks even more trashy in the light. Standing among the travesty is Carmen, dressed in a hoodie and sweatpants, her hair in a frizzled ponytail, her face completely bare of any makeup. Even so, she is pretty. Warner sits in a wheelchair a stained t-shirt and basketball shorts on. His beard is scratchy and patched. His legs are hairy and thin from lack of use. What happened in here? What are you talking about? This. All this. It's whatever. What did I tell you? Remember what we read. The only way you're going to get better is by maintaining a healthy diet. Don't do that. What? That. I don't know what that means. That. What you always do. Which is? Everything you always say. That healthy diet shit. All that. It's true. It's not. It's bullshit. I know it. You know it. What is wrong You say what you feel like you have to say. What they taught you to say at wherever the hell kind of school you went to. Are you saying I lie to you? Yes. That is exactly what I'm saying. I've never lied. Then what would you call it, huh? Sugarcoating? I have no idea what you're talking about. Maintain a healthy diet. Get fresh air, blah, blah, all that. What's it gonna do? What do you really believe that's gonna do for me? What? Well, I'm gonna get a can of spinach like Popeye and all of a sudden pop up and run a marathon? I never... Or, or even better, maybe if I get enough sunlight exposure, I can drive to the store and get my own goddamn food. Then maybe I'd actually want to maintain a healthy diet. Or No, I've got a good one. This is unnecessary. No, you're gonna want to hear this one. And you know it. Maybe, just maybe, I can get in the shower without your help. I get it. Okay, I get it. I don't think you do. You're right. I don't. I can't. And if I'm being completely honest with you, I don't want to. But this, all this junk, isn't helping you any. And what will? Tell me what will help. 
Solve my problems, I beg you. I'd get down on my knees, but you know, I can't. My job isn't to help solve all your problems. It's to help you live a halfway normal life. Halfway normal people don't require other people to make their lives halfway normal. This is my job, Warner. And this is my everything. It's time for your medicine, so I'm gonna just... Yeah. She walks to another room. Warner takes a breath. He rolls over to the couch and picks up a pillow. He places it over his face, his hands squeezing the fabric. He screams, pain muffled and silenced. He slowly lowers the pillow and places it on his lap. His face is red. His eye is redder. He taps his hand lightly on the pillow. Carmen re-enters, holding a hand full of medicine in one hand and a glass of water in the other. She hands each pill to Warner one by one, and one by one he takes them with a drink of water. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's no big deal. Really? Okay. Canada. Huh? It's where I always wanted to live. In Canada. I hear it's nice. I hear it's cold. I was so sure of it when I was a kid. I knew I was going to get there. I had a map on my wall and everything, I swear. I don't think I've ever been more committed to something in my life. I have a cousin in Canada. How does he like it? He's in prison. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I just, I just wasn't expecting that. No, I get it. Man, that's crazy. But I know how that feels. Prison, I mean. You can leave any time. Oh, yeah, I'll just wheel my ass down the highway. Maybe pick up some girls on the way. That's not what I meant. I know you think I'm an asshole. I don't. Oh, you do. You'd be batshit crazy if you didn't think I was. I don't know what you want me to say. I was raised Catholic. I know that if my grandmother was alive, she would push me off to a church somewhere. I can take you to church. There's no point no more. God can't do nothing for me at this point. I'm damaged goods. You're still a person. I look like a person. I believe that. But that's where the line ends. And I didn't even do it for selfish reasons, you know? I didn't go out there for some patriotic grandstand. I was a kid. I was 18 years old. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to have a career in something. Make a family. Buy a home. Be somebody. Be something. But when you got a family that can barely afford to manage their kids in public school, can't even keep the lights on every month, and I had to do what I had to do. I was the oldest. My father was getting old. My mother was, well, she was my mother. I was tired of having nothing, of being nothing. And on the commercials, they tell you that if you want to make a change, if you want to make yourself useful and be important and worth something, if you want to build something, you got to suit up and fight. And now I can't stop fighting. I'm sorry. For what? Hey, you're just doing your job, right? It has nothing to do with you. There's nothing you could have done about it. I'm pretty sure you got the short end of the stick by having to take care of me. It's what I want to do. No one is forcing me. I know. Now, at least. I used to think you'd walk out that door one day and never come back. I was sure you'd just give up. It didn't help that I talked to you like crap. I'm used to being talked to like crap. 
It's a long story. I don't have anywhere to be. I need to make lunch. What do you want, grilled cheese? Come on! I thought we were having a conversation. Or do you want fast food? I think I saw a place that just opened up a few blocks away. I can be back in no time. I see. It's just I think the cheese in the fridge might be expired. You know, if you don't want to talk to me, you can just get out. You don't have to beat around the bush. Just leave. I'm sure you won't have any problem making your money. Warner. I'm not an idiot. I can figure things out. I've done it thus far. I can figure out how to fix my own lunch. I can figure out how to wipe my own ass. Please sit down. No! I'm sick of it! He stands, his veins flexing out from his muscular arms, sweat spotting appearing on his forehead. The chair begins rocking back and forth, Warner's weight uneven with it. He trips over the wheel and falls, hitting the ground. Carmen goes over and reaches out. Starting to grab his arms, he waves her off. Stop it! Just stop! She backs away. In the quiet, the sounds of Warner's crying is audible. He lifts his head and some of his upper body long enough to wipe his face. He reaches out his hand. Carmen walks over and takes him by the hand, then by the side, lifting him back into the chair without trouble. He wipes his face once more and clears his throat. Are you okay? No. This is my job, Warner. Yeah, I know, but that's not it for me. Look around, Carmen. I got nobody else in here. Nobody. You're young. You're healthy. You can leave here. Be free. Feel the wind on your face as you drive home. You can go out with your friends, have drinks, make life plans. I'm not saying it's not fair, but it's not fair. Don't worry about lunch. I just need you to help me get in bed. My dad was a drunk. And I was his little girl. Luckily, we didn't have too much in common. I didn't pick up the worst of his habits, so I guess I dodged a bullet. Sorry, but he hated a mess. I got that one from him. He wasn't that bad at the beginning, at least not from what I can remember. But it got worse when my mom died. She was sick. Cancer? AIDS. A blood transfusion gone very wrong. He didn't blame me, or even himself, or even the doctors. It wasn't like that. He was a man and reacted like one. He wanted control of every situation he was in, but he couldn't control it. None of us could do anything about it. We can't choose the fucked up things that happen to us. We're not in control. I was supposed to come back a hero with an arm full of money and benefits. I wanted to be Superman, and I could have been. I still believe that I could have been. Then I took one step. One step and bam. Everything that I wanted went away in a literal fucking flash. I was supposed to come back a hero, and instead I came back a burden. You're not a burden. Not to me. You're lucky you. Imagine having poor parents who hardly have a pot to piss in, and now they have to worry about me. The stress they had got greater, the bills they had more zeros on them every month, the tumors growing inside of them got bigger, they're gone now, I killed them. Shut up. I'm sorry, but stop. At least your mom just got the bad end of a draw, but I could have done so much more. Says who? I mean, really, says fucking who? 
You talk like you're the one who's dead. I am. You're not. You're not. Wait here. Where are you going? Just wait here, please. She disappears into a different room. Warner takes hold of the uniform again, the medals still intact. He runs his hand over it, lifts it to his nose, and smells it, then goes back over to the chair where he initially retrieved it, and places it back. He goes around the room, then stops, looks around the room. A new look is on his face, one that is calmer than before. He starts picking things up off the floor. He crumbles the bags and smashes the cans. He continues through the room, his arms getting fuller, materials falling into his lap. Got a thing for trash now? Thought I'd make it a little easier on you. What's this for? Drop the trash. We can do that later. I'm taking you out. Oh. No. I can't. Yes, you can. Put on the jacket. I have I been. know. Put it on. Let's go for a ride. Is this some half-ass attempt to take me to the doctor's office? Because I'm pretty sure my next appointment isn't until, like, next week sometime. <laughs> no. Come on. Let's feel the wind against our faces. He puts on the jacket. She takes his chair by the handles and pushes him out. A bright ray of sunshine enters the room as they exit. So that was Hands from the Fire by Chris Eli Black. I wanted to thank Spencer Sansom for reading the stage directions today. Spencer is a recent graduate of the BFA Musical Theater Program at UWF, University of West Florida, and is also a very beautiful man who is one of my best friends on this earth. Speaking of stage directions, I wanted to also say that in the print version of this script, there are more stage directions than what he read. However, we had him read only the crucial-to-be-heard ones, keeping in mind patching them into our dialogue and our audio and what they pertain to. So now we are moving on into the research portion of our episode. Chris Eli Black is our second living playwright that we have had featured on Earworm. We do a few different kinds of plays here. Plays in the public domain, non-royalty plays, or submissions. Chris's play is the third kind. Shortly after publishing our first episode, Chris reached out to us and wrote Hands from the Fire specifically for us. No, I believe Chris is a college student, so the only research we did was talking with him directly. He sent us a bio to get to know a little bit more about him. Here it is. Chris Eli Black is a writer, performer, and composer. Born in Louisville, Kentucky, and raised in Houston, Texas, he fell in love with the arts at an early age, often opting to write raps and poems in high school over the traditional essay. As a performer, he was recently featured in a production of the musical Hair in his birth city of Louisville. He is the writer of the film The Brother Survivor, which won an award at the World Fest Houston International Film and Video Festival. He is the writer of the play The Inevitability of Sunshine, and was also micro-commissioned by the Louisville Arts Network and Lift Up Lou to write his performance poetry piece entitled Hope, Living as a Black Man in America. He is currently writing the book, music, and lyrics for the original musical Liberty Bleeding. Chris, if you're listening, I'm a musical theater major and would love to hear your musical. Also, I just want to say, I pronounced Louisville correctly. <laughs> I disagree, but we'll move on. It's um, Louisville. 
Alrighty, so lastly, we would like to thank Chris for his play and encourage all of you to check out his social media presence. He is getting it done out there. So this concludes our research portion, and now we're going to move into our discussion. that was our research now we're going to get into our discussion points for today um first things first our first impressions so i can't speak for zach but i know for me when we first heard from chris um i didn't really have clear expectations of what kind of um play we were going to get from him but what we got was so different and so surprising in like the best way i very much enjoyed it definitely um, Chris, when he first got in touch with us, that was like super cool. And he had the piece ready so quickly and it was such a polished product. Like when I read it, I knew that he had said, Oh, I wrote this for you guys. But when I read, it, I was like, there's no way that he just whipped this up from when he heard our piece to contacting us now. Um, so I think we are very lucky to have met him. I would love to work with him again sometime in the future. Oh, he was such a doll. I, I just want to also say that he was our very first submission. I mean, we've received a he couple was. dozen now. Yes. And he's, he, he was our first. Bonus and it was just such him. an amazing product. Yeah. So he's amazing. You guys should check him out. He's on um, Instagram. We follow him. He's, I'm sure he's on Facebook. I don't really know what all he's on. But he's out there. Find him. He's amazing. Yes, he is amazing. Um. <clears throat> Next, we're going to mention that the setting, we didn't read it as part of the um, thing that Spencer did with us, but I want to mention because it's very crucial to the story. Chris said this uh, said that this piece takes place in 2008, and he specifically wrote soon after President Barack Obama took office. So the implications of that, I think, are twofold. We have the implication of uh, Veterans Affairs, the VA, and how that was being run, how it's being run now. Um, there's not a lot of services out there for veterans, and it's improving by the day, but uh, funding is very narrow. And a lot of changes took place in the VA around that time, so that definitely impacts it. And then I think one of the most um, crucial things that Obama's kind of famous for, I guess, in our country is Obamacare, Mm -hmm. is healthcare, you know. And so someone who is in the position that Warner is in, he is going to need intensive healthcare for the rest of his life. And intensive mental healthcare, too. This is, I mean, he's in the middle of a mental episode. Well, and that's one of the big issues is mental health for veterans it is not paid attention to um especially at this time going it says recently after obama was elected and entered office so he changes haven't yeah administration yeah so changes haven't taken place yet but veterans have such a higher rate of ptsd of suicide Mm -hmm. of substance abuse you know so there's so many things that could be going on behind the scenes Um, Another important part of the setting that we didn't mention yet is that this takes place in a very small town in Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, Religion was very briefly mentioned when Warner talks about his grandmother, but we can really make an assumption about the religious and political climate of where he may be. In the play, um, in the setting description, it says a small town in Texas compared to Marfa. 
Marfa is a small town in Texas that I had never heard of. So I had <laughs> to look it up. I'm so sorry to anyone in Marfa listening, but... Yeah, if we have any of that um, key Marfa demographic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, never been to Texas, so I had to look you up. But Marfa, Texas, as of 2018, had a population of 1,714 nice. people. So very small. But the cool thing is it's actually considered a minimalist art hub reaching back to the 1970s. It's actually really cool. It's really cool. There was this really famous uh, artist that grew up in New York City and moved to Marfa. And a lot of his art was actually based on the time that he was living there. He set up a whole studio. It was this huge thing, but it's still a really small town. That sounds like a play idea in itself. Yeah, um, but Marfa is in the middle of the West Texas desert. And that's about it. So um, that kind of wow. paints the picture of where Warner is. Not only is he isolated emotionally, he's isolated from his family, but geographically he's isolated. There's going right. to be a lot of resources that may be available to people or to veterans in in larger, Marfa, Texas. In larger cities that are not available right. in Marfa. So that kind of plays into it as well. Um, next we're going to get into our characters. So first, Warner. Warner. Um, so something to know about Warner that we didn't reveal in the piece, like, verbally, is he is a white Hispanic mix, much like Zach over much here. Much like me. <laughs> but he's in his 30s. I have to say, like, when we first read the piece, I was like, did he do, like, market research when he wrote this for us? Because <laughs> yeah. that's um, me. <laughs> but it says that Warner is in his 30s, but it kind of, like, implies that he's in his late 30s, so he's a little bit older. Right. Um, Which is not me. <laughs> it specified that he was injured in the Middle East and that it is a permanent injury. Um, so in the piece, it does say shortly that he attempts and kind of fails to stand up. But what are his real limitations? So we can assume that he's not paralyzed, but he is injured in a way that walking is not something that is, at least for now, within his grasp without some intense physical therapy that I think we can assume he is not going to. Right. Um, and emotional therapy that he is not going through. Yeah, so, but that's Warner. Our other character's name is Carmen. She's in her 20s and 30s, but she's written to be um, much younger in comparison to Warner. Yeah, I definitely get that vibe. I think maybe she just presents as younger. Mm-hmm. Um, it says that she's his part-time carer. So that, when I first read that, that led me to think, when is she not there? You know, it said that she right. was showing up. She asks about lunch. So I'm going to assume it's in the afternoon time. So he's been alone all morning and all night. When does she leave? You know, so that's a lot of time when... Well, yeah, and in the beginning, it says that, um, I mean, Warner's just been sitting there in his mm -hmm. apartment in the dark, just... With trash everywhere. Huge who, who red flags. Who knows how long he's been sitting there, Yeah, you know? huge red flags for mental health. But, so we have to think of, is she a part-time care because he only needs part-time care? You know, is that um, something that was told to him by, like, his doctor or his occupational therapist? Like, you don't need someone 24-7. So what's he doing with that extra time? And if he doesn't need a full-time care, what is he capable of doing for himself that he maybe isn't doing for himself? He's obviously not taking care of his home or taking care of himself. It says in the character descriptions that he, um, his uh, facial hair is really unkempt. His body is really unkempt. So he's not caring for himself physically. He's not caring for himself um, mentally and emotionally. <clears throat> I think his emotional state, like, is just, is what's leading him to place so many limits on himself, too. A hundred percent. Like, she even says, like, shut up. Just stop. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you don't even realize it. I think we can all recognize that 
to lose something that comes as naturally to us as walking is oh absolutely God, right. devastating. Oh, yeah. And so we can all think that, like, oh, like, it will be hard, but I can get through it. But I don't think that's true. I think it's such a life-changing event to lose such a natural bodily function. He even says, like, he can't, um, like, use the facilities by himself. He can't make himself meals. Well, right. And, like, in the first, <clears throat> I think it's in the first, like, ten lines, mm -hmm. there's a little bit of nuance because he says, no, I don't think you do understand. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just to everybody who doesn't know what it's like. I mm -hmm. mean, we don't truly understand, and we can't truly understand. And um, Carmen even says, I don't want to understand. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a real emotional moment between them where she, she admits, like, we don't want to know what that feels like. And it sucks that he is put in that place, not by his own decisions. He right. even says he's just walking. It was one step, mm -hmm. one wrong step in the desert, and his life changed. Um, that's also, it just came to me, that's also kind of an interesting point. He was injured in a desert, and he lives in a desert. Um, a lot of... Uh, war vets have an issue if where they live, where their home is, is similar to where they were injured or initially traumatized. Right. So maybe the outside environment is just tough for him to handle. He's feeling a lot of the same sensations that were around him when he went through this traumatic event in his life. And I think that's also almost, like, I don't know if it was Chris's intention, but, I mean, I think that's almost symbolic of maybe he's um, not moved on yet. Maybe mm -hmm. he's keeping himself in this situation. He's not truly... I would definitely agree that he has not moved on. It right. says that he's in his 30s, and he went to the military very young, straight out of high school. So how long has he had this injury? You know, we can assume that he got injured within the first little bit of him serving. So right. how long has he been stuck in this rut of not letting well, and go? Well, his parents used to take care of him, he says. Mm -hmm. I mean, he... Who knows? Carmen may be of a recent... Addition, addition to, to his life. life, yeah. Another thing about Carmen that I think adds strength to their relationship is it says specifically that she's straight out of school. So I think that may build some issues with respect between mm -hmm. Warner and Carmen because she's younger than him and she's fresh, like, on the market for employment. Right, but I also think there's some resentment because mm -hmm. he said, you know, I did this so I could eventually go to school. That probably never happened. No, he thinks that's out of his reach now. Right. So, I mean, I feel <clears> like in the beginning, he says in the beginning he talked to her like crap. And yeah. I feel like that is a, probably a definite reason why. Yeah. I mean, she's achieved things that he can only, he, he thinks he can only dream of. Well, and he brings up that she can go out with her friends and have drinks and do all that stuff. And he feels like that's out of his reach. And I think we really have to think about all the things that he assumes are out of his reach now. They can be social interactions like that. But mm -hmm. just his house is out of his reach. You know, homes are not designed to be wheelchair accessible. Right. They are not universally accessibly designed. So... He can't cook for himself because he can't reach the top of the stove the way he normally could. It's dangerous. So there's yeah. so many things that are in his face that are out of his reach, like his own home. But there are more complex like ideas, like social interactions, like ed higher education, that if he can't live like he used to live, he can't move forward with those things. I definitely think that half of what he says is a, an issue of accessibility mm -hmm. and half of what he says is an issue of placing limits upon himself. Mm -hmm. What do you think their relationship is like outside of this one conversation? 
I don't know. I feel like they're very sarcastic with each other. I feel like they're also probably very silent with each other. I think this conversation is the the sort of turning point in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, when he starts to be a smartass with her, mm-hmm. she immediately shuts down one word answers. She's just there to do a job, mm-hmm. you know? I think that might be a result of how their relationship has been up to this point, you know? Sure. At some at the beginning, I think it's a little bit of patience, and then she loses that patience, and that's why she goes into what you had mentioned of the one word just going through the motions, doing her job, doing right. what she needs to do for him. Um, <clears throat> I think he really... This is that final moment. He's been pushing her away emotionally. He's been talking down to her. He's been, like, pushing her away and trying to keep her from... Keep himself from attaching to her and keep her from attaching to him. And he's always surprised that she stays. He says that, that he's surprised that she hasn't walked away yet. Yeah. So who else has he been pushing out of his life and has successfully Well, who knows how many, how many part-time carers he's pushed away? Yeah, this it could be his first. It could be his fifth. Um, it sounds like he's really used to the idea of abandonment. I think he might, even though he blames himself for his parents' death, I definitely think he feels that as abandonment as they, they left him not by their own fault, but they're gone now. Um, he mentions that he's the oldest of some siblings. Where are they? Right. You know, know? he, he says, look around, no one else is here. And maybe that's just another thing. Maybe he's in Marfa and he's shutting himself off to the world at this Mm -hmm. point. We can make the assumption that they're trying to reach him and have contact with him and he's not allowing it. Or we can assume that they have fallen out of contact because it's not easy to stay in contact with him. I think, like, we said it last, we said it last week with Kit Lavoie's piece. We want, um, I would love to see a follow-up, you know? I think that really just, that really makes a good short play is that you want to see more. You Mm want to know about these these people's lives. Mm -hmm. I think with this one, though, I have a much easier time picturing, like, where this goes of um, Warner starting to allow himself to heal and things like that. Um, What do you think Warner's primary emotion is throughout this piece? Primary emotion? Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Like, what what is the emotion you think is the forefront in his... In his experience right now, is he mostly sad or angry or fearful or lonely? I think it's mostly just him. I think he, quote unquote, gave up a Mm -hmm. long time ago in Mm -hmm. his head. And this is, you know, Carmen digs him out of that trench. And Mm -hmm. at the end, when he agrees to go out and feel the wind on his face, Mm -hmm. that's him saying, I'm not giving up anymore. I'm not going to place these limits on myself anymore. It could be a situation of learned helplessness. Like he oh, has, absolutely, yeah. He has put himself into a hole and... And, and now he thinks and, he can't get out of it. Yeah, and he has learned what he can and can't do, even though that might be false information. Right. I think hopelessness, like we've talked about, is there. I think loneliness, because he knows that he pushes people away, but it's too painful to be with people and know that there is such a stark reality between that he thinks is between them. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. And I think he's really struggling with depression and I wouldn't say that depression is like his primary emotion because that's just a condition based on a collection of symptoms, which we very clearly see him displaying throughout this piece. But I think it's definitely something he either has struggled with or is struggling with. Um, how do you think his emotions are manifested in his actions and in his environment? I mean, if you, if we go with giving up, I mean, it's it opens with 
the the door opening on his apartment. It's dark and there's trash everywhere. Mm-hmm. He's given up inside of himself and he's showing that with his environment and how he takes care of his environment and mm-hmm. himself. No, I definitely agree. What do you think Carmen's feelings for him are? I think Carmen... I So, bear with me. I think Carmen <laughs> has a view of this in the lens of gender as well. Because she says that her father, you know, mm-hmm. um, she said he reacted like a man. He was a yes. man and he reacted like a man. So I think in regards to him, it's, oh, he's a man. His pride, his machismo. He he's, I mean, he's half Hispanic, you know, his yeah. machismo. You know, um, that that's getting in the way of him seeing, of him, like, being yeah. reasonable. She's assuming that about him because that's the pattern that she's been shown. Right. And that so, that's how men act. So they're, they're near each other in age. Mm-hmm. But Carmen presents as younger. He presents as much older. Mm-hmm. So I think, in a sense, she views him as a father figure, almost. Not, oh, you're my dad. But, you know, but as But she a, places him in the same category. Yeah, as an older male figure in yeah. her life. So I think maybe it's her trying to do right. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's her trying to have something with him that she didn't have with her own father. I don't know. I just think that... It's a similar view. It's a similar scope. Mm-hmm. I think it could be based off of that. It could be based on something else. I think that Carmen definitely has compassion for the work that she does because she mentions, like, this is, no one's forcing me. This is what I want to do. This is something she went to school for. Right. She has kindness. But I think she does have a sort of love for him. Obviously not romantic love or anything like that. No, definitely But, like, not. some sort of, I would say some sort of familial love. Like, I want to go past caring for you. And help you feel better, you know? Right, she didn't have to do what she did in the end. Yeah, she doesn't have to take him out. She doesn't have to go that extra mile, you know? So I think we can say for a lot of healthcare workers, they do go to some extra mile of trying to care deeply for the people that they are in charge of or watching in some way. But I think that she does this because they're kindred spirits and she recognizes that. And they're in two different places in life and they're in two different emotional stations but they do have that something in common that makes her want to show him a level of affection right you know and i think that would do that does good for him and i think that's gonna be I think it in, is good for both of them i yes i agree i think it's important into whatever his road to emotional recovery looks like i think she would be very key in that yeah what are your th- final thoughts about the piece anything that we haven't talked about or was interesting to you about it I don't know, this whole this whole play was so, so, so different than anything I would have imagined being submitted to us, you know? Yeah, it's very a very mature view, I think, for someone who oh, is in right. college, which is in the, the same, like, I guess, stage of life we're both in. You know, I just got out, you're, this is your last year, last you year. know? So, I mean, I think we can be in, we can recognize that we're in a similar place in our lives as Chris is, but this is a very mature, mature piece view. and a very... Um, like, inside view on what this experience is like, which I think is very, like, I commend him for it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so <clears throat> intricate, this story. It's like he was a fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. Truly. I would be interested to see how he conducted whatever research he did or, you know, because this definitely s- sounds like a story from someone's experience, from someone's heart, you know? So I'd be interested in that, I would. I, I really do hope we can work with him again. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
great. So that wraps up the end of our discussion. Um, one last thing before we go, we have gotten a couple of submissions in the past couple of days actually for our show. So we have picked one out that we're going to start preparing for the following weeks. But a new fun thing that we're doing is the piece that we have picked out is actually a little bit long. So we are going to be dividing it into two episodes. Two episodes, two part episodes. Yeah, so it's very exciting. Um, we got a submission. Um, her name is Guadalupe Flores, and we're very excited to work with her. Yeah. Um, we have started preparing the piece already, and we're impressed, y'all. It's going to be oh, really amazing. Be um, but if you have any questions or concerns about today's episode, if anybody out there has any submissions or any ideas, um, please reach us at our email, earwormaudiotheater at gmail.com, and that's theater spelled T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Yes, and I just wanted to say one more thing. Um, we are now on social media. Oh, yay. yeah. So we, you can find us on Facebook at Earworm Audio Theater or Instagram at Earworm Audio Theater. Um, we are now available anywhere podcasts are. All of the major platforms we oh, are available. And on. we are waiting for iHeartRadio yes, to approve are. us That'd to be, be put really on cool. them as well. Um, um, but be patient with the social media. I'm in charge of it and I am learning. So I'm doing my best. <laughs> so yes, again, please submit or if you know any playwrights, um, tell them, pass along our information. We'd love to hear from them. Specifically, two-hander plays or monologues that they have written, or short scenes. You know, we're we are open to considering anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you like our podcast, share it or support us on Anchor.fm/slash/earworm. All right, thank you to thank you, you guys for listening. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs>